Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. America has a housing problem. Restrictive land use regulations prevent developers from building housing in cities throughout the country, leading to a shortage in housing supply, particularly in high productivity, high wage cities that a lot of people might like to move to. So today I'm speaking with Emily Hamilton to explore how zoning reforms that make it easier to build housing would increase opportunity for individuals and boost economic growth nationwide. Emily is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center, where her research focuses on urban economics and land use policy. She's the author of the recent report, Opportunities for Better Federal Housing Policy, How the Biden Administration and Congress Can Improve Housing Affordability. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. How big a problem is housing affordability? It's a huge problem. Right now, nearly half of the households who rent in the U.S. are rent burdened, which means that they spend more than 30 percent of their income on rent each month, generally leaving them without sufficient money left over to meet their other needs and save for the future. And this problem has been getting worse over time. So the median income of renter households is now spending more of their income on rent than they were in previous decades. What's driving this? In large part, it's due to local zoning restrictions that make it really difficult to build new construction housing in places where demand for housing is very high. And these rules particularly limit lower cost new construction. So almost every locality in the U.S. implements something called single family zoning combined with minimum lot sizes. And together, these rules mean that only a detached single family house for one household can be built on a specific lot And that lot has to be of a certain size. So basically each house has to have a a yard of a certain size. And in effect, these rules cap the number of, of houses that can be built in a locality. And they mean that in places where land is expensive, housing in turn has to be very expensive. What are some of the sort of broader macroeconomic uh, impacts uh, of housing affordability? This this is becoming a, a big area in macroeconomic research. And because these rules essentially limit the number of people who can live in some of the most productive parts of the country, they mean that in turn, people can't live where their best job opportunities might be located. This is most extreme in the Bay Area in California, where essentially one new household moving in means that another household is going to have to move out because the supply of housing is so constrained 
by these local rules. So people are instead moving to places where housing is relatively affordable. So some of the Sunbelt cities are growing really quickly where it's easy to build housing under local rules. And those are great places to live. Certainly nothing wrong with people moving to Texas or Arizona or wherever. But we're seeing people moving to where housing is affordable rather than to where incomes and job opportunities might be the best, which means that our economy isn't growing as much as it would otherwise. We're losing out on innovations because people can't live in the place where they could bring their ideas to fruition. And income mobility is stagnating because people are no longer moving from low-income parts of the country to high-income parts of the country at the rate that they used to. So either, so if I want to, if so I'm living in a place, I don't think I'm doing particularly well. I want to move to a place which seems like a, a hot job market. Uh, I want, but uh, because of these problems, housing super expensive. So either I can't afford the move there, or if I do move there, housing is going to eat up a lot of those higher wages, right? Exactly. And for people at the very high end of the income spectrum, it's often still worthwhile for them to move to where they could earn even higher incomes because uh, they still earn enough relative to housing costs, even in the most expensive markets to make that worthwhile. But for people who are earning lower incomes, their wages might still be significantly higher in the Bay Area if they're a, a hair cutter or a bartender or anyone in those, those service type jobs. But their wages in the Bay Area aren't enough higher compared to lower cost parts of the country to make that extra housing cost make sense for them. Right. What would be the impact broadly if we had sort of massive deregulation people uh felt freer and it was more affordable to to move to some of these cities has, has there been research on what would be the impact like on u.s economic growth u.s productivity growth anything like that yes there there has been and there's there are a range of estimates but the estimates are staggering. So there are estimates finding that income mobility has been held down by about half since the 1980s due to these restrictions. So if we saw massive deregulation in the parts of the country where it's really difficult to build housing, we could expect income mobility in turn to increase by a lot. Um, the estimates find that right now the average American worker is losing thousands of dollars of income each year due to this uh, what's called spatial misallocation, where people are living in lower cost parts of the country rather than higher income parts of the country. And so we could expect the, the benefits of allowing more people to live in the high income parts of the country to have a huge effect on household wages um, and on economic growth and productivity. Right. So just just again, so the key, sort of the sort of the key regulations are what again? 
So the, the key barriers to housing construction are, are local zoning rules. So right. single family zoning and minimum lot size restrictions being two of the most common, but there are right. all kinds of rules from parking requirements to historic preservation to rules that apartments have to be each a, a certain size that make it difficult to build new construction that's relatively low cost. So if I had, if this was, a, if this was the, a, a debate and we had someone who uh, thought these were all very reasonable, they would not call them barriers, you know, sort of, you know, reasonable uh, restrictions. What would, what would be the case that, yeah, we should have minimum lot size requirements and single family zoning and there should be parking requirements. What is the case for these kinds of rules? Well, many people like their neighborhoods the way they are, often for very understandable reasons. They're not eager to see more residents moving in who will mean uh, more traffic, more competition for street parking, um, crowded grocery stores or, or whatever their fear may be of an increasing population. But when neighborhood after neighborhood makes it really difficult for more people to move in, we start to see these huge macroeconomic consequences. Um, so the, the costs of, of new growth are overweighted at the local level relative to the benefits. Right. Is this an impossible political issue? You know, not, not every problem has a solution. Is this an example of that, <laughs> that every problem, there's just, listen, be, be fantastic. We could just build a lot more housing and we'd have these fantastic growth and people be able to move higher wages, but you know, there's just nothing you can do about it. And uh, obviously you think there's something we can do about it, or you wouldn't be, you know, devoting your scholarly energy <laughs> tackling it, but it just seems to be about as, about as tough a problem as you're going to find. It's certainly a, a very tough problem politically, but I've actually gotten quite a bit more optimistic about steps toward making this a less severe problem in recent years, uh, particularly because state policymakers are stepping in to set some limits on the extent to which their localities can constrain housing growth and increase the cost of housing. For example, we've seen several states take action to make it easier for homeowners to build accessory dwelling units, which is essentially a, an apartment that's on the site of a single family home that the homeowner can then rent out, whether that's a backyard cottage or a basement apartment or a garage apartment. Uh, state policymakers are recognizing that these local rules are a threat to state economic growth and state population growth. And once we get a little bit removed from that local level, policymakers tend to consider the cost of land use restrictions in addition to their benefits a little bit more thoroughly. I noticed that in uh, President Biden, this sort of infrastructure proposal, which has lots of stuff in it, which doesn't seem to be obviously infrastructure, there is some um, there's some stuff in there about, about housing. Did you notice that? Yes. And so uh, I mentioned that at the state level, there's a more of a recognition of the cost of land use restrictions compared to the local level. And that's even more true at 
the federal level where there's been a bipartisan recognition of the problems of local barriers to housing construction for a few decades now. And the Biden proposal would reward localities for reforms with a new grant program that would provide funding to local policymakers who change the rules um, of their, their zoning ordinances with the idea of making it easier to build more and lower cost housing. Um, so, so, so Lisa, your sort of first you know, glance at what the, and, and again, these are probably just a couple paragraphs in a proposal. Does it sound like that's basically the right direction or a possible direction you're sympathetic to? It's certainly something I'm sympathetic to. Unfortunately, Congress is, um, is pretty limited to what it can do to encourage local reform. And this type of grant program that's structured as a race to the top program to reward localities for reforms is, I think, about as, as well as can be done at the federal level. But unfortunately, many of the most exclusionary localities, those that make it really difficult to build new housing to accommodate new residents, are also very high income, wealthy localities that just may not be as motivated by these grants as lower income localities that are already doing less to obstruct housing construction. So I think this is is generally well-designed, but has just limitations built in. I would say that I think it's important for federal policymakers to look not just at the rules on the books of, of local zoning ordinances, but also to consider their housing market outcomes. Because sometimes localities have kind of sneaky barriers to building more housing talked a little bit about accessory dwelling units, but many localities and states say that they allow accessory dwelling units, but they're actually really hard to build because of all of the limitations on how much parking they need to have, where they can be situated on a lot, how large a lot needs to be in order for one to be permitted, um, and on and on. So sometimes the, the rules that appear to be big reforms don't actually make a lot of new construction feasible. Uh, this, this to me seems like a it's, you know, classic sort of you know, supply and demand kind of situation. It, it seems, you know, we, you, know you, don't, you don't build much housing. There's a lot of demand for housing. How, housing prices go up. Uh, what are some other... Uh, beyond building more housing, making it easier to build housing, there certainly must be other sorts of approaches, such as, I don't know, uh, you know, you know, uh, if people can't afford housing, we should give, give people money so they can afford housing. What are some other approaches and what are the sort of the pros and cons? Yes, the Biden campaign endorsed doing basically just that by expanding what's known as the, the Section 8 voucher program to cover all households who qualify based on their income level. And I, I think that that is ultimately the best way to improve outcomes for the lowest income households. But it's important to recognize that by increasing access to vouchers, housing affordability problems could get worse for households who earn too much 
to get those vouchers without big reforms to make it easier to build lower cost housing. So expanding voucher access makes reforms of the local zoning restrictions even more essential. There are lots of other proposals to improve affordability, rent control, um, which, which has consequences for new housing supply in addition to benefiting the, the tenants who get to that, that's not benefit. A, I mean, that's to me, when I hear rent control, I think of some sort of like gritty 1970s kind of movie. <laughs> um, is th- but this, is this uh, like a, a live uh, idea that people are still proposing? It actually is. Uh, I think there was quite a consensus several years ago across the political spectrum that rent control had a big risk of backfiring, but it's it's come back in recent years. There have been a couple of state rent control laws in Oregon and California, but these state level laws are designed to limit the rate of rent increase to relatively high rates of increase on top of the uh, consumer price index. So they're not very binding. They would only affect rental rates in the most extreme um, rent increases. And I think that those as part of a compromise to allow more housing to be built might be a a worthwhile political trade-off. But certainly the old style rent control that just caps rents to the rate of inflation or even caps nominal rents Um, can seriously backfire in terms of how much housing gets built and how it's allocated. Um, Another option, of course, should be just for government to build more housing, right? Government, government owned, uh, government owned, government, you know, built housing. Are there, are are there lots of cities building, adding a lot more government built housing? Not today, but that's another proposal that has certainly gained popularity in recent years is for the federal government to increase its its, um, funding and to allow localities to build brand new government-built, government-managed housing for people generally of a, a range of incomes is what current proposals are focused on. I'm not enthusiastic about that approach at all, because if we look at some of the largest um, public housing authorities today, they're spending more than we would expect private multifamily operators to spend on both their capital expenses and their ongoing operating expenses. But their outcomes for tenants have been disastrous in terms of the, the quality of the apartments that they're making available. So without some type of plan for serious improvements to construction and management of government-built housing, I think we will continue to see the failures um, that are, of public housing that are well-known in the U.S. Have, um, has your uh, work looked at all at just the sort of cost of construction, how that feeds into affordability? Um, is, is that an area where there could be, you know, some sort of innovation, just making it cheaper to, to build homes? 
Certainly, that's not an area that I've done a lot of research on, but there are big differences in construction costs depending on what type of housing we're talking about. So a detached single family home will have generally the lowest per square foot construction costs. And those costs get much higher when we're talking about a high rise, fancy multifamily building that requires um, a lot more engineering and more expensive materials in order to build. And for this reason, a lot of people have focused on allowing more small multifamily to be built, whether we're talking about duplexes or something up to a small walk-up um, stick-built multifamily building. Those middle-sized projects have construction costs that are closer to those of single-family costs while still allowing multiple households to share expensive land. Uh, and there are certainly companies working on um, techniques for modular construction and uh, prefabricated construction more broadly that aim to seriously bring down um, housing construction costs. Um, to me, this seems like, like an obvious issue where you should really be able to get um, people on the left uh, and right to, uh, to agree on. But I do worry that this, is, <laughs> that this, like many other issues, is going to become divisely partisan, a culture war issue. And I don't know if you caught this, but uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News the other, uh, the other night uh, was talking about the, the Biden plan that we mentioned earlier. Uh, and, and, and if I can uh, uh, quote him, he said, Biden wants to eliminate, quote, exclusionary zoning and, quote, needless barriers to produce affordable housing unquote. So your neighborhoods may have to make way for, quote, multifamily dwelling. You don't want multifamily dwellings in your neighborhood? Doesn't matter. Too bad. Uh, so that's that's an argument. Um, what do you think of that argument? Well, housing in general is a pretty nonpartisan issue. There are certainly people on the left who are concerned about the status quo because of what it means for affordability and what these density restrictions mean for environmental outcomes as well, because households who can live in uh, denser multifamily neighborhoods tend to have much lo lower carbon footprints than a household living in the excerpts, for example. Uh, and on the right, there are certainly people who see this as a property rights issue. Someone who owns a piece of land should have more rights to develop that land than they do under current lo local zoning restrictions, um, as, as some on the right see it. But there's also... Right, uh, maybe this way you're going to get into in case you're not. To me, it's not just about a rights issue. It's saying that um, you like you like your neighborhood the way it is, they're going to put in a, you know, a giant, a giant multifamily building. Uh, and therefore it's going to ruin your property values. So, you know, so be, be scared of this. this you know, that's, that seems to be at least be part of the argument. Uh, certainly. Yes. Concern about property values is a, a huge driver of current restrictions on housing construction, but in some cases, it really depends what uh, what specific piece of land we're talking about as far as the effects that we could expect to see on existing 
house prices. In some cases, giving homeowners the right to develop their property more densely is very likely to increase their property values because they now have the option of selling not just to another uh, household who's going to live in that house, but also the option of selling to a, a home builder who's going to build two or three houses in its place. Which cities or regions would you advise policymakers to look at as far as a good model for uh, housing regulation? Well, as far as state level preemptions, we've seen the most coming out of California uh, because that's where the problem is most severe and there's the most widespread recognition that the status quo is failing a lot of people. California has done a really good job at the state level of making it easier for homeowners to build those accessory dwellings that we talked about. And there are other efforts in California again, at the state level, to increase um, more serious multifamily housing uh, construction opportunities as well. At the local level, I am always interested in Houston, which doesn't have use zoning separating commercial uses from residential uses, which means that it's feasible in Houston to build housing in many parts of the city where that just wouldn't be allowed otherwise. Uh, and Houston is well known for allowing lots of greenfield development, so new subdivisions at the outskirts of the city. But over the past couple of decades, Houston has also made some important pro-density reforms reducing their minimum lot size requirements and to make townhouse construction feasible and eliminating parking requirements in some of their neighborhoods that are close into job centers. Um, so it's, it's actually seeing a lot of what's known as infill development, which is the redevelopment of um, parcels that are surrounded on all sides by development already, in addition to that new greenfield development. So if you were um, going to make the case for this, these kinds of reforms to, uh, to, a, to a skeptical audience, audience that just views this as uh, you're, you're going to ruin my property value, you're going to change the character of where I live, um, you know, what, what, what is sort of your clinching, you know, argument that you can make to try to persuade them? Well, I think concerns about property values are generally very overblown um, by just fear of the unknown rather than any likelihood that allowing a little bit more construction is going to have a big impact on property values in any direction. And talking to someone who's, say, an, an adult who has children today, I would encourage them to think about their own kids and those kids' opportunities to live in the locality or the region where they grew up or to live in the locality or the region where their best job opportunities might be located down the road. Because ultimately, these trends of productivity and income mobility being squashed by zoning is really harmful to young people today and to future generations. My guest today has been Emily Hamilton. Emily, 
Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Jim. 